Welcome everyone to episode five of Pats Uncovered. I am really excited to have Bill Tullock join me today. Uh, Bill has been a principal consultant at Redify Telstra Purple, where I currently work, and it's been great having him around the office and chat to him and stuff. So that's how I've known Bill, and I'll let him go through and introduce himself. Well, hi there. Um, yes, so as, as Akansha said, I've, um, I work at Purple. Um, I started when it was Redify and have been there nearly 11 and a half years, um, which is probably a lifetime for some of you. Um, I've been in software development for, I, I worked this out the other day um, for somebody, uh, approximately 28 years. So I had my first um, first paid job in 1993. I've been doing it that long. Um, that's, yeah, that's me. And I've been doing it ever since. Perfect. Um, so I know a little bit of your background in terms of you've had kind of an unorthodox one, not necessarily just in tech, even though it's been a great career in tech, clearly in the last 28 years. But do you want to take us back to, was tech the first thing you did? Um, I don't think it was, was it? Um, no, tech, well, it's an interesting question. Depends how broadly you define tech, doesn't it? Um, mm. I actually, uh, post high school, I went and studied painting. So I actually attended an art school. Uh, it was my first uh, college slash university and that was in 1977 and I studied painting and I trained as a painter and after finishing, after a delayed finish, which is a completely other story, I uh, practiced as a painter. That's what I did. Uh, at the same time, I was also got involved in music. So the 77, 78 was the sort of punk scene in Melbourne. Um, I didn't play punk per se, but it was the idea that anyone could play music. So I started playing music as well. So yeah, I started as a painter. I, when I was at high school, the only computers had cars with holes punched in them. <laughs> so, but, and, and I was actually doing advanced maths when I was at tech, which was um, the high school period. And we thought the people who did computing and walked around with the yellow cards were somehow less because we were advanced maths and they had to use a machine. And it just shows you how stupid I was because I should have done that. Oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I kind of understand that. I think I remember, um, I can't, I think it was when I was growing up and we'd be doing maths and stuff in school. And my granddad used to be a teacher and he used to teach maths and science and stuff. So he'd kind of be like, when we were home with him, he'd be like, right, this is how you do your times tables and stuff. I remember when calculators became a thing. I think this was when I'd moved to Ireland. Like he would literally just look down at it. So he's like, don't you dare touch that thing. You don't need it. You can do better than that. <laughs> and I mean, I look at myself now and I'm like two plus two. Well, let me just check that again. Having done a maths degree, but here we are. Yes. <laughs> but it's so interesting. Oh my God. Yeah. So painting and music. music. So was painting kind of the paid kind of job in the daytime? And then was music just kind of as a passion? At the no, start? well, you know, if you go to art school, um, you go there with the um, good knowledge that you won't have a job at the end of it. Um, painting is just something you did. Um, fortunately, the government had a grant scheme. It was called the Dole, which is how a lot of us survived back in the day. And music and painting were, weren't one or the other. I did both. 
Um, I actually had a studio in King Street in Melbourne, um, which uh, four of us shared for painting, but we also had uh, two bands rehearsing there. One of them was mine and one of them was um, some friends of mine. Um, so they weren't, there wasn't a separation. It's, it was just being creative. Painting, music, didn't care. Okay, cool. So you said you started tech in the 90s, right? So that was, what, how did you even get to that? So what was next in Bill's life? <laughs> oh, okay. So to, to put this in perspective, so I was involved in music, I was involved in painting. One of the things I was playing music and you have to have someone mixing the band. Um, and me being me said, I don't like the fact that I don't know what they are doing. So I taught myself to be a sound engineer. And this is how I actually made, well, I think saying it's a living is probably stretching the truth a little because you got paid bugger all. Um, but I worked as a sound engineer for 10 or 11 years in the music industry. Um, and that included also being a tour manager, I was a roadie, mixing bands. So I mainly worked live. I also did uh, studio work. So that's what I, I did was I was a sound engineer. Yeah. That's how I, I kind of paid the bills. The thing with music uh, is that, that that was actually one of the early points when I came into contact with the computer technology. Um, there was MIDI, which was a, is a, a digital language for recording music or capturing music notes. It doesn't actually record um, we were working with a lot of um, digital equipment uh, when we were working live. And so the early computers were around and people were starting to use them for sequences. So I actually first sequencer I owned was a, a little box that had a, a cassette tape attached to it and you'd record into it. But um, my grandfather died and I inherited a small sum of money and went out and bought an Atari 1024. So that was my very first computer. And they were great because they actually had the, the Atari 1024A was cheaper than a Mac and it had built-in MIDI ports. So you could buy music software and hook up a MIDI instrument and record music. So that's how I started working with computers. I then started using it for graphics. So I started using it for drawing and creating images and stuff like that which led me into desktop publishing. And so I started doing freelance work as a graphic designer and typesetter. And in the process of that, since I didn't actually, the only printer I had was a nine dot matrix and you needed to do laser prints. You took them to a um, printing shop to get it printed. You know, you put it onto your floppy disk, mm -hmm. run down the road, get them to print it. And it was all in PostScript. But then we had problems because the shop was Mac, I wasn't. So I started hacking PostScript. That's how I actually first started programming, was manually hacking PostScript files to get them to work. Okay, actually, set something in context for me. When did you buy that first, the Atari? When did you buy that? Uh, let me see. Dum, 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 dum. 1987. So you had your first, <laughs> I still remember the first computer that we ever had in the house and I was about five or six years old, maybe a bit older. And I remember it was this old, old piece of tech. And so I mean, five or six years old for me would have been 
sometime in the 2000s, like early 2000s. That was the first time I would have seen or had one. I think the only thing I could do with it was paint. That was amazing. <laughs> it was like Windows Paint back in the day, coloring things in. But God, that is just, it's great. And I think it's the different, I mean, I grew up in India at that stage, right? So, I mean, I was living in India and it's just interesting how kind of at times so far behind, it just seems so foreign to me to see a computer even in the 2000s. And it's still floppy disk and stuff. And you're telling me about that back in the 80s. And I'm like, this is just crazy. <laughs> Yeah, well, and but the point was, a lot of us who were in, involved in music, we jumped on this stuff very early. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, it's a creative thing. Oh, look, a new tool, you know, it's it's a new effect. This is just a new tool. We start we start working with it. The process through that was that's what I, that's how I started working with them. And then I, my future wife, um, I got evicted from the flat I was in. Um, that another story and moved in and her brother was also into computers and he had um, a 386 I think or maybe even a 286 and so I he did night shift so I used to use his computer during the day and so the next part I learned was programming dbase using clipper which was um, a compilable language for writing to dbase so my next programming thing was using clipper so I started doing that. Um, and I kind of just got sucked into it, just got deeper and deeper yeah. into it. Um, so there was something, you know, so back in the, you know, I, I remember my first modem for that thing was was a dial-up modem. I mean, literally, you had to dial and then put the phone in it. And, you know, that was, that was the first modem I had. Um, so, but the great thing was that at that point, even, you know, when I was teaching myself Clipper, it was a bit like the Wild West. There was no one to tell you what you could or couldn't do. So you just did yeah. everything. Because I was going to ask that. So, I mean, this all sounds very kind of self-taught, right? You're kind of just teaching as you go. Where, like, was this just you trialing out different things in front of you? Like, was there books? Like, how, was there any support in that system, in that sense of words at that stage? Um, yeah, well, no, in those days there were books. So, um because I, I had Clipper and um, there was like a two inch, and I'm using Imperial Measurement here, like a two inch thick reference book. So literally I'd say, I want to do X, you know, I want to uh, display a, a field for someone to enter data. And you just, you just kept hacking away and you learned just by trial and error. And this is back in the day when variables couldn't be more than, um, you know, eight characters long. So you got some interesting things there. <laughs> Um, but I just spent hours on hours on hours just hacking away at it. And you kind of had to because most of the software we were using wasn't legal. Um, it was acquired by means that yeah. I, I don't ask about. Um, so you, it's not like it came with the books and stuff. You just had this floppy disk. Because um, I was doing graphics, I, I also had the first version of Corel Draw. Um, which was a, as a drawing program. And again, it was obtained, not purchased. So no manuals, no books. And I literally, that whereas everyone else was playing games, my fun was trying to work out how the software worked by just playing with it. So I just spent yeah. hours doing that sort of thing. So there just seemed to be that underlying interest in how all of these things that you were experiencing just were working, I guess. And it just kind of kept spiraling from that sense of things. Well, I think it does. 
And, you know, coming as a sound engineer, again, I'm working with tech, admittedly a bit more analog. You know, you had real knobs and things on desks. But all of this is, is constantly just kind of pushing the envelope, working out what works and what doesn't work. And then you accumulate knowledge. You know, you build up this stockpile of things in your head, you know, what works and what doesn't work. I fix that problem by doing this. Therefore, this must work. So I, will, I can repeat that process. And... That's probably the way I've learned nearly everything. Uh, you know, I just, I've said, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to go and work out how the hell that, that's done. Oh, that is absolutely amazing to hear, to be honest. It's like, and I think it still is somewhat true. Like most of the things, I mean, I've learned how to program a little bit in college and stuff, but everything I've actually learned and retained has been very much... I need to do this. I needed to get this kind of a solution at the end of it. How do I make it work? And you just kind of keep trialing things and it just sticks with you because you've gone through all the failures of everything. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I've seen this fail 20 times. This is the one that worked. <laughs> and look, I think it's, I think it's an interesting process. Um, the, you know, because it wasn't the internet. I mean, if we dialed in, there were news boards and stuff, but you didn't have Google. You didn't, you couldn't look up the online manual. Um, so you experimented, yeah. um, you know, and back in those days when we had Windows 3.1, you know, we'd be hacking the registry all the time, you know, um, you know, got one one mega memory. And, you know, how can I how can I really how can I make the memory really useful? You know, we put RAM disks in. We did all sorts of stuff. Um, sometimes they failed. Sometimes they didn't. I even dismantled my floppy drive once because it wasn't working properly to fix it. Now, there's no way I would do that now, but, you know, you're just saying, well, I'm just going to pull it out and open it up. And I found a, a Coles shopping sticker inside. So it was a good thing. I fixed it. Um, but yet, uh, I think it's that having that kind of, you know, there's nothing stopping me. There are no boundaries. So you just, you just go. Yeah, that is amazing. So you've self-taught a bunch of different languages from the sound of it now at this stage. Mm. Uh, you've tried all these different things. So how, I mean, and so you've clearly, like you haven't gone to college for computers and uh, are computers really big at this stage uh, across like a general kind of population wise things? Like how did the first job roll about? Is it just the fact that you were one of the few that were willing to test things out and hack things and actually had the knowledge or? You know, I think I came in at a really, I mean, this was a, this was a, you got to remember, this was a period when you still ordered your computer and it got built for you and then you picked it up. Mm. You know, you didn't walk into Officeworks and take one off the shelf. I mean, you literally said, well, I want this much memory and I want that and stuff. But how did I get my first job? So I'd been doing this stuff. I'd been doing the graphics. Um, I was really getting into it. And I started applying for jobs primarily around graphics work because there was, a lot more of the advertising agencies and stuff were had been and were using computers uh, for graphics, so for, for layout, for typesetting, for doing uh, images. Um, so there was very early uptake in that kind of graphic design area uh, with computers, mm -hmm. but they weren't common. Um, they weren't like not everyone had one, but there were areas where they were working on it more. I ended up, I got knocked back a lot. Um, and then I applied for a job at the School of Engineering and Deakin University, and they wanted a uh, graphic designer and programmer. Interesting mix um, uh -huh. for this role. So I went up and I applied, and I got the gig. You know, and in this, I've, I've said this to quite a few people because they say, "Oh, look, you know, I'm looking for jobs," and I get knocked back. And I said, "No, 
you keep applying because one day you'll get the job that you're meant to have. And that was the one I was meant to have because the head of the school yep. basically gave me free reign to do what I wanted to do. And so that job was involved with um, doing graphics. They were big on uh, distance education. So Deakin University was an early precursor to a lot of the distance education. So I was doing all the, the graphic work for the printed material, but I was doing multimedia as well, which meant I was literally building uh, things like uh, programs that simulated manufacturing processes. I built a lab that was a, a virtual lab for doing tensile testing. Um, this was all done using a program called, from memory, AuthorWeb which is a 4GL language. It's, it's kind of a layer on top. But basically, I was there for seven years and I just taught myself what I needed. I learned, that's yeah. what, I learned VB3. Um, I, never, I never learned the classic languages like C and C++. You know, I was coming D-base, VB3. I was working on this stuff. But essentially, I had seven years of freedom, if you like, to just learn yeah. and make mistakes. And I was trusted. It was cool. First key. Oh God, that trust is just so important, I think, to be like, eh, you can do it, do what you want with it. Like, it makes such a difference, I think. And it's something I, like, for the first time I obviously experienced at Red, White and Purple. And I was like, wait, what? You really? Okay, cool. You just expect me to get the job done because you think I'm capable and you'll leave me go do with it. Oh, it makes such a difference, I think. Um, and it really does show through. So that was seven years you got to just try out and do essentially a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, so what was next from that? Was it a case that you found something that you were really interested in, more towards the programming things, or what was next? Oh, well, I mean, the programming thing was it, and that's, and this was, so I got the job in 93, and what the web first kind of kicked into, you know, the World Wide Web kicked in at around mm -hmm. 95. Um, at first I hated it. I thought it was horrible because at that stage, you know, it was a grey screen, text going from one side to the other, you know, horrible stuff. But yeah. then uh, some people were working with CGI and that. I think that was CGI was one of the languages. But um, Microsoft released ASP Classic. Mm -hmm. And so I started building web pages uh, and web applications, not just static pages, but building web applications. Uh, there was also the early days of JavaScript. So I had a grand old time with that. And uh, the early days of CSS, uh, which I thought was a boon because it, suddenly I could, I could actually make things look and better and have a better user experience. So I built um, essentially uh, templates to handle the 100 plus units that the school offered. So I built a system mm -hmm. that could, could generate separate data for each of those pages, um, admin tools so lecturers could track what people are doing and they could do drag and drop to order questions, you know, stuff. If anyone saw the JavaScript for it, they would die, but it worked. And it's all in ASP. Um, believe it or not, running against an access database. Um, you know, this is, this, is oh, way, wow. this is way before we did any of, you know, the, you know, SQL and, you know, having a testing server. I mean, I literally would, someone would call up and say, oh, there's a problem on the website. I would go into the production server and literally fix the code, test it. No, that's not it. I'll write something else. I'd be, I'd be working directly on production server. I hadn't learned all that, that seriously, you know, quality thing. But I think the, the one thing to call out on this is, yes, I did all of that.
but I know, and I've spoke again over the years, speaking to people, I was, I was always sitting there waiting for someone to come in and tap me on the shoulder and go, um, excuse me, you don't know what you're doing. Get out. Um, and I lived yeah. with that for a long time. You know, I kind of always felt I was faking it. Um, and I probably was, but at some point I got through. I tricked them all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm starting, like, I mean, imposter syndrome is definitely something that kind of, I don't know anyone that hasn't really gone through it, but I'm kind of starting to hate that term, I think, a little bit at the same time. Because it's just kind of becoming this excuse for everything where it's like, oh, that's what that is. Like, yeah, feel out of your depth. But I think there you learn a little bit more when you are uncomfortable and constantly feeling like you're not there yet. Oh, look, I totally agree. I, I was talking to one of our consultants uh, yesterday um, uh-huh. and we were talking about something. And I, and I made the comment, I said, I'm actually happier that you're uncertain about your capability than if you were so certain of your capability. Because uncertainty is the thing that drives you to learn and stri- and makes you strive to get better at something. I think it's, I think, yeah. you know, the two key things for, I mean, for any job, but in, in, in programming and, and the various related areas is don't trust yourself, feel nervous and be curious. You know, yeah. um, it's, I, it's a bit like, I remember once someone asked me, because um, I've done a lot of presentations and stuff, they said, do you get nervous? I said, yes, I always get nervous before I present. In fact, the day I don't get nervous is the day I'm dead. You know, <laughs> we, we live with that. It's not bad to be nervous. It's not bad to have uncertainty. It's just a question of how you use it. You can either use it for good or evil. Um, I tend to prefer good. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it, I think. And I can't remember who said this to me. Maybe it was with, it was within the last year. And it was kind of just talking about consulting in general. And I was just like, I kind of just don't know what's happening. I'm kind of just constantly in the unknown a little bit. And they're like, yeah, welcome to consulting. Just you get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I was like, that is actually a really good way of putting it. And the minute you get too comfortable, you're like, this isn't okay anymore. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh and, you know, you can get uncomfortable about different things. Uh, someone was, you know, again, I was having a conversation and I'm uncomfortable meeting people. I have, you know, I find humans tricky at the best of times. Um, and they were asking and they said, how do you deal with this? Says, I dress up. So if I'm going into a meeting with a client, I go the, the full three piece suit. I've got my rings on. I said, I'm playing a part. I treat it like theater. When I walk into the meeting, it's a piece of theater. I make an exaggerated version of myself. That's how I deal with it. That's a way of doing these things. I absolutely love that. And I never actually knew that's what it was. I just thought you liked dressing up and I thought that was great. Like I remember coming into the office and you were full, and I was like, I love this look. <laughs> Especially when like our, our office was an interesting place to be where there was people like fully dressed up in full suits and like dresses and heels. And then on the other end, there was literally people in like hoodies and shorts and runners. <laughs> it was a really interesting place. But I definitely remember the first time in the office that I did see you fully uh, in this, like the three piece suit. And I was like, I love this look. <laughs> yeah, well, I've actually always loved suits, even when I was at art school, but I used to buy them from secondhand stores. 
So I've always dressed up in suits and had hats. Now I can just afford better quality suits. But that's part of my <laughs> shtick when I go into clients. I know I'm wearing a suit that's worth more than, you know, their pair of shoes. You know, that's that's that how works. I that's how yeah. I play the game. And it's important because it's part I think especially when we get into consulting, um, there's this idea, you know, I I went through this thing that, you know, when I was work I the next job I had after Deacon was a, a travel company. And I went through this whole, oh, it's time to be an adult, you know. So I, I had to wear suits there, but, you know, I, I kind of subsumed my natural, my nature. I, I subsumed yeah. the fun parts of me because it was time to be serious, man. Uh, and I got to a point and I, yeah, I realized I was getting unhappy. And why was I getting unhappy? Because I wasn't being true to who I am. And I think this is one of the things I've also now started advocating is find you should express yourself, express who you are, be who you are in a way, but make it work for you. The difference between being a child and this is the thing you have understand, the music industry was actually the last refuge for the people who didn't want to grow up. You know, we were all emotionally stunted in the music industry because we just avoided the world. Um, I had to eventually get past that. But the thing, point I'm, I, I was looking for was that you've got to find a balance. Don't lose the child in you. Don't lose the thing that makes you you. All you have to do is to function in the adult world is to shape it a little bit so that people don't freak out too much. That's really good advice, I think. Like, bring the best parts of everything, I guess, and pull it together in that sense of things. Just... This is it. This is where it works. And this will get you through it. I like that. Okay, so you've now worked at Deacon and basically set up, God, what sounds like to me is like my whole college experience throughout it um, in terms of the web application side of things. I'm like, that was very cool. And it's like, it's wild to hear you being like, I thought I was going to get kicked out any other day. When you're literally kind of building things from scratch where you don't have real, like I'm assuming you didn't have too much to be like comparing um against i mean right now if you were to look at i need to set something like that up i can look at a thousand different university pages um and then you ended up at the travel agency so what was that like what was the shift in that context like that was look that was a really interesting thing that was i actually went to drake for six months before after deacon i was at drake for six months but then to a couple of planes ran into a building in new york and so drake decided they were going to retrench people and I was one of the people uh -huh. who got retrenched, which, so I, I tend to step over that point now. So the travel company I worked for, they were what we call uh, ticket, cons they were fair consolidators and ticket issuers. So without getting into the whys and wherefores of the travel industry, at that point when people still printed paper, paper tickets, you needed to have a plate to print the ticket. So a travel agent could book your flight, but they can't yeah. print the ticket. They had to get an organization to print it and that's what we did so they had an in-house uh, software team an IT department and I basically just continued I did a lot of web development then um, building portals for travel agencies so they could look up fares uh, stuff like that I built some business to business uh, web services actually they weren't probably web services at that point I'm not sure what they were they were something um, so, yeah, it was an in-house team and uh, focused a lot on just building web applications and stuff. I, I actually pushed uh, the adoption of .NET. So .NET came out around that time, um, uh -huh. 2002, something like that. 
And I jumped yeah. onto that straight away and we pushed that. I built my first um, continuous integration server there as well, which weeded people out. Um, so I think there used to be a thing called Ant that, you know, and you wrote XML files and then it would listen to when something was checked in uh, and then it would go off and do a build. And so built the whole system that was, we were using source safe. That's always exciting. It would listen to changes in source safe, grab the code, build it again, all VB six, thirty five, um, and then actually bundled it, dropped it into a folder, and then then the users because it wasn't a web application, it was actually a desktop application, then the users could pick it up and run it. Um, but that was that was a, an interesting insight into how people think. There was one developer there that every time the build broke, he would come over to me and he'd go, Bill your, your system's broken, the build's broken, it's your fault. So I'd immediately go and look at the code and it was always something he'd checked in that had broken it, you know. This was an interesting insight into how people won't recognise their own faults. <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, hasn't changed, has it? Like, I mean, that is still the case in a lot of places where that kind of blame game happens. But, oh, that is, honestly, Bill, like, you've just been involved with, like, the starting area of all these like really commonplace things now, like university places, uh, travel agency, like these are just so commonplace, but you were there kind of at the forefront of it. It's just, just super interesting. So you've done kind of very much hands-on, like kind of almost, um, what's the term for this? In-house production or development, I guess, in that sense of things, right? Yeah, so what was, the shift? what was the shift? So how did the shift to consulting happen then? Because that's such a different part of life in that way of things. Oh yeah, yeah, and it well, it is and it isn't, and I'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I left that company. Um, I had some issues with some of the staff there. I was getting bullied, to be honest with you. That's there's a confession that shouldn't be recorded. Um, and I just said, no, I've got to get out of here, and I ended up at another company that developed software for the recruiting industry. Um, where I worked uh -huh. for two years. Now, that was actually really good. Um, I met some really smart people there, um, very open. We were, work we again, web development, also WPF had come out at that point. So we were building applications in WPF, um, which was a hoot. I mean, I loved that stuff. Because again, you're building UI, you know, you're doing, and we're doing all sorts of fun things. Um, so out of, at that point, um, I knew a, a gentleman called, Christopher Chris Hewitt, who uh, worked at Redify, and I ran into him in the cafe, yeah. and he said, "Oh, and we'd actually met a couple of years ago when he'd came into the travel company I was at, um, look, didn't did some work for us freelance." And he said, "Oh, oh you should apply for Redify." I said, "Oh, okay," because uh, Red, you know, I was thinking, "Well, that's going to be a step up," and I applied, yeah. and got past the first interview. Though you know, you had to code test. And I did the culture interview, I think. And then I had to go in and be interviewed. I had to do a live programming thing. Now, that was the scary mm -hmm. part. Um, there was a, a guy called Mitch Denny, who's now at Microsoft. He interviewed me. And it wasn't even remote. He was sitting next to me. And I, I just died. This man is so clever. And I think I'm just going to... This is the, my worst nightmare, is having someone watch yeah. me code. And it went to shit, to be honest with you. Um, I failed. Yeah. I dropped the bundle completely. And um, Mitchell's really cool, though. He said, look, 
he said, you've got to get comfortable having people watch your code. If you're going to be a consultant, you've got to be comfortable with these kind of things. He said, so, you know, go off and do something about it. Out of that, I thought, oh, that's a good idea. So at, at the, the the other company I was at at the time, I then ran a .NET training course over six months for the VB developers there to upgrade them. So I actually found a way to learn to be comfortable coding in front of people by running these workshops. At the same time, I realized that not having a degree of any sort in computing was a potential problem in the future because, you know, back in the 90s, you could get away with it. But as we've moved mm-hmm. into the 2000s, et cetera, people are paying more attention to that. You know, it's becoming more codified. So I ended up doing my master's um, at the Charles Sturt University. That was a, re- a distance thing. Um, so yeah. I did my master's. And then I reapplied for Redify, went back. And that's another long story. There was kind of miscommunication and whatever else. But um, I think the first time the the woman who was heading up HR says, oh, um, I'm just letting you know you failed your code test. And I thought, oh. So I called my friend Chris. I said, look, sorry, Chris, I, I just didn't make, I didn't make it past, you know, first base on this one. And he said, oh, hang on a second. He, you can hear me. He's going type, 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 type. And he says, I can't see you here. It hasn't happened. You know, there's no record of it. Um, and then I get a phone call a couple of days later. Oh, we're sorry. Wrong person. <laughs> and so I went through the whole thing again and did the, the, the debugging test. And that went well. And that's how I got into Redify. Um, so the thing is, you're right. I, how do I go from consulting, from being in-house to doing consulting? Yeah. I don't think there's a big jump. I don't... Mm-hmm. I think if you're good at... I mean, to be a good developer, you've got to be good... Contrary to the myth that, you know, yeah. we're all sitting in our bedrooms, you know, in our underwear, coding away 24-7. Um, being a good developer is being able to ask questions. It's being able to... Yeah. Um, I, I say to a lot of people, if you want to be a good consultant, you've got to have empathy. You've got to be able to imagine what other people need or do. Put yourself in their shoes. Uh, so even though I was developing in-house stuff, it depended on me asking people questions, trying to understand what they wanted, trying to get them to uh, be able to articulate what they want, work out what they don't want, but think they want. And that's what consulting is. I mean, yeah. there's, there's the part where we're technical experts and we can go in and we can, you know, you know, fix problems. That's part of it. But it's also mm-hmm. being able to communicate and understand what people want. So I didn't actually find it such a big jump. Again, it was scary. I thought I'd got into Redify by accident and I was having another, you know, tap on the shoulder moment because, you know, I was working with some seriously smart people. They scared me. They were so smart. And you never think of yourself as being smart, but apparently I was wrong on that one. I mean, you've built up, I'm like, I agree, you were definitely wrong on that part. But I mean, it that is definitely, like, I felt exactly, it was exactly the same when I started. I was just surrounded by all these people, like yourself and Bernard, like 
everyone who's just who know exactly how the in and out of these things work and I'm like ha I've never even heard of anything you're talking about and don't know what tech is don't know what any of this is so this is great and it's just such an interesting time and I think I'm really glad I made I forced myself to go through it because I got it was again that thing of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and I was just like right I don't know anything let's just start learning this is a great place to learn because of people like yourself and this is this was the thing when I joined the company and it, it still is the, the really surprising thing because I had worked at least one place where the developers were very secretive they'd never tell you anything you know Mm-hmm. If you ask them, oh, why did you do that? They go, oh, well, you know, I can't really tell you why I did that. You know, it's secret stuff. Um, and so basically, you know, knowledge was power. But the thing when I started Redify is that no one would ever refuse to explain something to you. You know, the general assumption is that everyone knows something. Nobody knows everything. So even though you may you know, have knowledge in one area, the person sitting next to you may have knowledge in another area and everyone was willing to share. And I think that's a, that was a critical part. And then you would have experienced as well. Everyone's happy yeah. to show you how to do something. And the point is senior, you know, people who you consider seniors would come to you for advice as well. You know, I, 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 I know you know something about this. Can you show me how to do it? But it's, it's true. And I think that was always the, the, the real joy with it. Um, and it's probably why I've stayed so long. Um, because it was always a, a generosity of spirit, which you don't always find. Um, and I think that's been a good thing. No, that is a really good way of putting it. And I think it's so clear how much kind of even your starting roots of stuff have stayed throughout. Like, I mean, the painting and stuff turning into kind of graphic design, turning into more user experience and like what people are actually seeing and how they're using it. Like it really has like flowed through. And it's, you know, what was super interesting when you mentioned the music part and the sound engineering. So some of the, one of the guests that I had, I think he was like episode two, Jason, he had the exact same thing. So he started, he was a musician, like he went to um, college and studied music and ended up becoming a sound engineer in music technology. It was quite similar to how he got into technology, except he did more kind of, I think, other things to do with sound. Whereas yourself, you kind of got into the hackiness because you're like, well, how does it work? And I think that is just so interesting to hear it. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's two things out of that. When I was at Deakin, there was a, the the government ran a kind of an award thing, um, you know, for educational software. And this gentleman was touring around the country and he came and was looking at what we're doing. We got talking and he said, again, because he'd been out meeting all these people, he says, you'd be surprised at the number of musicians who are doing software development. Um, and the thing is, I'm not surprised. I actually studied music theory before I could play an instrument because it was mathematics, essentially. And yeah. I think the the correlation between music and software is really interesting. Neither of them exist until someone plays it or runs it. You know, I can write code, yeah. but it doesn't mean anything until it's actually used. Music's the same. I can show you sheet music, but until someone plays it, it doesn't exist. Um, and there's also this, there's a mathematical thing related to it. There's, there's, there's the way things put together, the building blocks. So I've always thought that the mindset for music was similar to software development. That is such a good way <laughs> to put it all together. And I mean, like I see so many people combining the two as well in general, 
But look, thank you so much for coming along and chatting to me today. Like I very much appreciate it. It's all I love these kind of calls, especially when it's someone who's had kind of a really varied career like yourself. It's just so interesting to hear how things have changed and how different it was. And honestly, I'm like still in shock at like you being at the forefront for so many of these things. It's been so cool to hear it. So thank you for sharing. Oh, look, it was a pleasure. Always happy. Yeah, I could keep talking for hours. I'm that <laughs> I'm sure we'll hear all the stories that you haven't gotten around to sharing with us today. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there for today because <laughs> we would probably end up talking for hours. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you very much for having me and it's been a pleasure. So that was Bill Tullock with an amazing career beginning from unexpected routes into technology. I think there's so many lessons learned in terms of where is and isn't the right place for you and how to be comfortable and always curious in this industry. A really important takeaway for me from Bill was how everything plays a part and there's lessons to be learned from all your experiences. Like Bill using his painting origins to continue into the graphic design world and the user experience side of things. We'll be back in two weeks time with another episode of Pats and Covered. See you then.